the Data Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into how to extract more value from your data. I'm your host and the co-founder of Story IQ, Dominic Bohan. And today we're going to hear about unleashing the power of AI-led analytics. Joining us today is Dominic Ligot, who is the CEO and CTO of Cirolytics, which helps governments, researchers, NGOs, and social enterprises leverage data to achieve positive change. Today, Dominic and I are going to discuss crafting use cases for AI in the data and analytics space. Here's my conversation with Dominic Ligot, the CEO and CTO at Cirolytics. Dominic, tell us about where you see some of the most compelling use cases for AI in the data and analytics space. Hey, Dom. Hi, Dominic. Every time people talk about AI, at least nowadays, all of the attention is focused on chatbots and image generation. And the truth of the matter is, long before generative AI came about, you have a lot of AI being used, discriminative AI, forecasting, regressions, all this stuff. And I think going back to basics, if you think about business, I think the use cases usually fall of the compelling ones, if you're thinking about a business, have to involve revenue growth and to, I guess to a lesser extent, cost optimization. And sorry to sound very finance, but I think that's one of the first steps in the work we do. Although we now mostly deal with humanitarian sector, NGO, we always look at what is your objective? Are you there to maximize productivity? Are you there to reduce cost? And then you dive into what AI and other technologies can bring. The nice thing about AI is some of the technologies are quite mature. If I'm going to rattle off maybe the top four I would say methodologies or uses of AI, it would have to be computer vision, so anything around images and video, language processing, which includes the stuff around chatbots and text analysis, process automation. A lot of people call it RPA or robotics, but it doesn't necessarily need, need to involve actual physical robots. We can have like digital robots, which function very similar to good old Excel macros. You have these processes and how can you repeat them reliably over time? And this whole space around big data, which includes everything from the data visualization work that you guys do to predictive analytics. This is also an, an area where AI can be brought to bear. Thanks, Doc. Really interesting to see you bring up just the classic finance stuff, revenue and cost. So I see a lot of people posting on LinkedIn, posting on social media, this incredible excitement about all of these different tools. And I very rarely see people saying how it drives business value. So it's awesome to hear you talking about that and to see that you guys have a focus on that. Are you able to share some more specific use cases of where you or you have for your clients seen massive value extracted from these tools? Yeah. So one of the longest running projects we've been doing, and this is in the health sector, is in areas of public health. So one of the projects we continue to work on now with UNICEF's help is how do we prevent dengue? 
get ahead of the dengue outbreak. And that uses a combination of satellite data, so satellite imagery, and social media data, so we can also look at what people are searching. And that's already two use cases for AI. You can use computer vision to look at the map and see if conditions on the surface have changed. And if you've modeled enough of these conditions, you would know that, okay, shortly after uh, some rainfall, some areas on a map would be highly conducive to mosquitoes. So that's one possible area where dengue could start if there was an outbreak. And I guess the trigger would be in, in social media, like searches on Twitter, searches on Google. This is an excellent area of where natural language processing can come in and you can get ahead of conditions on the ground long before people start appearing in the hospitals. They're going to start searching for dengue fever. They're going to start searching for dengue medicine. So that's in the health sector. But if you go into like commercial applications, I mentioned revenue earlier. What does it take for a company to, to grow revenue? You definitely have to sell more product and target the right customers. And these are like classic analytics use cases. One thing that AI can really do is, apart from determining which customer are more likely to buy your product, it can help you simulate conditions that lead to a purchase. And that's one area where generative AI can come in. Many people get too obsessed about the images and the text of the chatbots, but the same technology can be used, for example, to simulate customers. You can generate, randomly generate ideal customers and customers who would likely buy your product in a way, creating scenarios for your salespeople, scenarios for your marketing people to play with. And that can be useful for training. That can be useful for making sure you're selling to the right people long before actual customers start coming in. These are, I would say, very practical approaches you can take using the usual data you have in a company, but then applying AI on it. Thanks, Doc. So you mentioned earlier four main types of AI technology that can be used, especially relevant to the data and analytics space. So computer vision natural language processing, process automation, and big data. And then interesting to see in the health sector, you're talking about, it sounds like you're using two or three of these different technologies simultaneously. And if I understand correctly, the end goal is to predict dengue outbreaks before they occur. Is that right? Yeah. And more importantly, just get a handle on it. Interestingly, and this is just having dealt with the health sector over, for example, the COVID pandemic. The way traditional health surveillance works, there's a big emphasis on the clinical side of things. So when people start showing up at the ER or people at the hospital, and usually, I mean, by de definition, the moment they appear in the hospital, you're pretty much at, behind the curve. People are already sick. So there's a lot of opportunity in what I would call syndromic surveillance. It's, got, it's a public health term where you look at other indicators that indicate whether an outbreak is in progress long before they show up at the hospital. And this could save the health sector, not just the money, but also get ahead of mortalities. It's much better to start getting ahead of an outbreak when it's small rather than waiting for it to overwhelm the health sector. And that's just in dengue. There are potentially similar applications in other diseases. Like in the COVID, uh, the case of COVID, for example, people were even, long before COVID was identified as an actual different disease, the same symptoms were appearing all over the place. People had fever, people had colds. I imagine if we could have gotten ahead of the curve and start uh, addressing why do we have so many more coughs and colds than the usual historical patterns would suggest. Maybe there's something else going on here. And of course, this is just Monday morning quarterbacking. Just in hindsight, that would have been an opportunity. 
This is where it gets interesting, where it's applying that human judgment. It's asking some interesting and curious questions about anomalies we might see in the data, where it doesn't seem like there's any AI models that can do that yet, or do that anywhere near as effectively as a human. And so it seems to me that the fundamental skill that you guys are applying in these use cases is bringing together these different AI models, different techniques to solve a problem. Can you tell us a bit more about how you do that and how you you work with all of these different tools and technologies, but keep the end result in mind? Yeah, so let's keep it to the dengue story. What got us inspired mm. by that was essentially a data problem. So when we were tackling the dengue issue for a hackathon, one thing we noticed was the Department on Health of Health website was usually three, at least two or three months delayed in posting dengue statistics. And two to three months is pretty much, you're pretty much, there's no way you can effectively act on an epidemic if your data is three to two to three months old. So the, the sure. logic- I don't know much about dengue. How quickly does a epidemic kind of spread and peak when there's an outbreak? Historically, usually have peaks sometime in the middle of the year, like July, August, September. But if you look at the mos- like a life cycle of a mosquito, it's seven to 11 days from larva. Mm-hmm. To, to And if you are in an area where there's quite a lot of mosquitoes, by the way, the mosquitoes don't cause the dengue. They just transmit it. So you won't necessarily get dengue if you're bitten by a mosquito. But if somebody got bitten who had dengue, then that mosquito is now a carrier and it starts spreading it all over the place. So that was really a big deal. So anyway, um, thinking out loud, if you have late data by at least two to three months, that doesn't really work. And the logic was, hey, if there's a way we can correlate that data with data that you can get every day, every minute, every hour, and you had satellite data, you had weather data, you had social media data, if there's a way we can match those patterns, then we could practically have a real-time indicator. That was just the inspiration. But to your point, it does require human intuition. It still requires human judgment. But these are all kind of indicators that are beyond the hospital. This stuff happens outside what doctors would normally be looking for. And I think that's part of the, in a way, the insight is that there's an opportunity to bring in big data. There's an opportunity to bring in other insights long before people show up at the hospital. And the difference could be saving a lot of lives. And is the end result of combining all of these models some sort of prediction of some sort of advance warning to the authorities. If there's likely to be a dengue outbreak here, some sort of probabilistic estimate of the likelihood, and then that's used to take action. Yeah, so there's at least three use cases. One is definitely the alerts. So the sooner you get the alerts, the better. The second one is more for planning. So if you have, for example, like a pre-existing seasonal trend, you can already give an early warning that, hey, look, these are statistic, the kind of the likely times dengue would peak, but then the trigger would be something related to the climate, like if it's been raining a lot, and that can vary. So in a way, generally when it would happen, but you don't know exactly when unless you have these triggers. And then the third use case is really just because people are getting sick doesn't mean people are going to die. I think that's the kind of the variance you want to manage. And that's a combination of other factors. How vulnerable is the population? How resilient is that area? Do they have hospitals within X kilometers of a kind of a hotspot? And this is where integrating other data, maybe static data, government data can spell the difference in terms of planning for these kinds of epidemics. Thanks, Doc. This is a fascinating use case. We started, You stated earlier in the podcast that a lot of the hype has been around chat GPT and these large language models 
that have just recently become accessible to the public through a nice, easy-to-use user interface. In this particular use case with Dengue Fever, have these recent advancements in large language models and text-to-image models played a role? Have you been able to leverage them here at all? We're working on a way of integrating, let's say, a chatbot as, a, as an interface into accessing these applications. That's one opportunity. And then another area that's pretty exciting. I know you guys have done some work around teaching people how to do prompt engineering. This, there's a massive opportunity in integrating a large language model within the workings of, let's say, a dengue application. So it's not just pumping out some highly technical numbers and statistics. That can be the base data set. But then you can use a large language model to interpret that and explain it the way a human would to pretty much everyone. It's still early days for us in this space, but I think that's where kind of the integration could occur. It's not necessarily just using a chatbot for a conversation, but you can use a chatbot to interpret stuff. I think the tricky part is how would you train the chatbot to use this data and then explain it in a way that doesn't alarm citizens. That's the opportunity. That's a great use case. Has Cyrillitics experimented at all with fine-tuning or adapting some of these large language models? We, we got inspired by a recent application we saw. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called Chat PDF. I really love it because it's a chatbot, but it works on a PDF file that you upload into it. And then it'll just focus its, all of its information or effort on that PDF. And I said, this is a massive use case for pretty much anything. One of the ethical concerns with these chatbots is they tend to hallucinate because they assemble sentences in a probabilistic manner. They don't really retrieve data as such. So sometimes you can have a probabilistically true sentence, but it's actually false. But if you have a a workaround like this chat PDF approach where it won't care about any other data other than the data you feed it, but then it Mm -hmm. will parse it and explain it the way a chatbot would, I think that's a massive application waiting to happen in pretty much everything. So what if we could do a chat PDF style, but instead of a PDF, it'll assimilate dengue statistics or it'll start assimilating weather data. That's the opportunity that could happen. We're working on it right now, but we were really inspired when we saw some of these kind of later use cases start to appear and there could be more. That's great. I haven't tried chat PDF itself, but recently ChatGPT Plus users have all got access to plugins. So there's a PDF interpreter plugin that I've been using mainly to summarize academic papers, often about AI. Um, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, if it's just uh, making me lazier, but I can certainly see the applications for being able to feed your own data into these models and train them better. Have you had a chance to play around with the chat GPT plugins at all? Not the plugins. We've been directly playing around with the API itself, trying to integrate it to our applications. These plugins are pretty much just the APIs into product form. So maybe we envisage one of the plugins that might come out later is a Dengue plugin just for that mm-hmm. project alone. I mean, that's what I appreciate about how the ecosystem around ChatGPT has evolved. It's very open. They encourage developers to come in. They encourage people to experiment with it. Anyway, that's also part of what people are worried about because pretty much anyone can build applications on top of ChatGPT. But I think it's a net-net on balance probably more good than bad because you want it 
you want something that's very transparent and that everyone can benefit from. But again, that doesn't stop people from doing weird things with it. As you yeah, we see uh, crazy stories every day. So I'm really interested in the uh, chat GPT API. So I'm not a very techie guy, don't have a lot of programming experience. How hard is it either through the OpenAI playground or directly using your API keys for someone that maybe doesn't have a lot of expertise in AI or programming or technical skills to start tuning these models and getting them to do something useful? Yeah, so one of the first things you realize, I think a good starting point would be that there's this course from deeplearning.ai, Andrew Eng's prompt engineering course, if you can find it. It's just one and a half hours, just watch the videos. What you'll immediately realize is using the API is almost no different to using the ChatGPT interface, except instead of using the website, you're sending Python instructions to the API and it starts replying. Now, what really blew my mind, and this is just going through the exercises, is ChatGPT itself can become a logic engine, if you want to call it that. So, for example, you can start feeding it data that came from maybe a database, assuming you're not worried about that data being exposed to the chatbot. And then you can literally tell the chatbot, can you summarize this text or can you count how many times this word appears and can you return the result in a nice JSON format, which can then be ingested somewhere else in the app? And I saw that, hey, look, you could pretty much get rid of a lot of ifs and for loops just by asking ChatGPT this stuff. I think that's where the frontier is, where you literally use the reasoning powers of a chatbot in replacement for a, pretty much a big chunk of what would otherwise be really hard to manage programming code. And then more than that, because it's a conversational interface, you can already all immediately pre-populate the result with a text that people can appreciate. So as I said, the applications in marketing are interesting. The, the applications in customer service are interesting. One of the exercises was actually coding up a call center agent. <laughs> and I was telling people, that doesn't get more obvious than that. Like These things can really replace call center agents if we're not careful. It wouldn't surprise me. So Andrew Ang, Prompt Engineering course, what platform is that available on? You can access it directly on the web. And what it does is it gives you a video and then there's going to be a Python notebook within the web interface. You don't have to install anything. It's best for people who know just a little bit of Python. But if not, I would recommend just taking like a Python 101 tutorial from any, any training just so you're familiar with the syntax. It doesn't require like knowledge of any special libraries. It's pretty straightforward. This is the prompt. This is the response. And then you can build all sorts of applications on top of it. It's funny you should mention that. And it's an interesting suggestion, take a Python course, because I don't have any experience with Python. And by getting ChatGPT to basically train me, just using chat.openai.com, I was able to set up AutoGPT. So I'm running through the command line. And I just found that learning by doing was the fastest way to pick it's up the best way to do it. Python skills. Yeah. yeah. And then I think one thing that I don't know how many of our colleagues in analytics would agree. Of course, there's this fear that ChatGPT will start replacing programmers. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. But what will probably happen is most people will start programming through ChatGPT first before they become like full-blown coders of any sort. And the prompting process for me resembles coding, but in English. So people who are naturally inclined to writing out procedures or writing out processes, basically what would have led to actual coding, 
can now actually use ChatGPT instead. And, and that can be a good gateway drug basically to hardcore programming, as opposed to a traditional way where you have to learn all these computer science processes. And that weeds out pretty much a lot of people from otherwise having fun with code. This is exactly what I've found myself. I'm not a super patient or detail-oriented person, but I'm excited about the things that you can make code do for you. And so I think learning to write almost pseudocode in a logical and structured way and write good, clear, specific prompts, I can handle that. But sitting and memorizing commands and learning different libraries and frameworks, I just don't have the patience for it. So ChatGPT has been an absolute godsend for me. And I think you start to learn some of the syntax just naturally by osmosis as you focus on using it to actually do things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's this thing about, I don't know if you share this view, but I think the big the big shift in AI after ChatGPT is we might actually start seeing people who are users of AI, but not necessarily builders of AI. I try to liken it to cars. The people who know how to replace spark plugs and change oil are not necessarily the people who know how to drive the car and vice versa. I could have a Formula One driver, really good at drifting, may not know the first thing about fan belts and, and ignition. And... Up until the emergence of these chatbots, I would have preferred people to go through like proper data science or data engineering to be able to deploy AI models. But now I think we could actually birth a totally new type of AI user where they don't really need to understand the technicalities of the code, but as long as they're well-versed in how models should be used and they can start using these models in very different ways. And I think that could be, I, that's my fearless forecast. We could have two types of AI professionals. So they'll still need certain fundamental data literacy skills. They still need to be able to understand and interrogate and audit what these AI systems are doing, but they don't need all these in-depth technical skills. Try to find, try to find a good way to describe it because it's not quite technical skills, but it's almost accumulated knowledge and memorization of, of syntax, frameworks, all these sort of details that I personally don't have the time or inclination to learn. This is really interesting. And has it affected the way you're hiring at Cyrillitics or the way that perhaps you will hire in the future? It's more of a forward-looking thing because one thing that I don't know if this is too much of a cliche, the people who normally know the coding part, they usually struggle with math. And the people who know math, they usually struggle with communication. It's just because no one teaches all of these skills in one neat bucket. And usually it's a chore to have to learn everything. But now that we have these technologies emerging, it's not that you can skip certain skills, but you can get right down to the business of, hey, look, I want to analyze some data. I want to tell some stories. And ChatGPT helps with the heavy lifting. But on the, then on the other hand, people who understand algorithms, people who understand statistics, they can get busy with actually, as you said, auditing these models or trying to see how performance can be optimized. It just widens the opportunity to be a professional is what I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think overall, it's very exciting, especially for the data and analytics space. It just means more people with more diverse skills and backgrounds are going to be able to do meaningful work in the data and analytics space. There's less of a barrier to entry. Yeah, and then if you look at any organization, if you bring it back to business, I find this is a common, I would say, struggle whenever you hire 
like a data team or an analytics head is that you have organizations already populated by, I would say, non-technical analysts. That's a proper term. So people have already been working in marketing. People have already been working in finance. So they know technical domain expertise. They know how marketing works or they know how operations works. But they're not as deep in like running Python code or they're not as deep as, you know, into understanding what statistics says. So there's always this cultural division between the ones who handle the data and the ones who are going to use the data. And this kind of technology, the emergence of these large language models, could be a good way of either bridging the two cultures or empowering each culture to, to be better. So if you're more on the technical side, you can use the large language model to help you communicate with the business audience. If you're on the business side, you don't necessarily need to hit that brick wall and try to understand all this coding and math and let the large language model do the heavy lifting, but then you're going to use the output for whatever you need, like your reports or your strategies. So I think that's the key, how to unlock mm. that cultural divide in a company. That does sound like a promising use case. Do you remember there was a tremendous amount of buzz a few years ago? This is when I heard about analytics translators, about these people that are going to bridge the gap between the technical people and the senior people and the decision makers. And... It seems to me that one of the most compelling use cases for large language models is potentially doing that role. It's something that I've found ChatGPT, especially ChatGPT4, to be particularly good at is take something technical and say, explain it to me in simple terms or even teach me this. Teach me what a logistic regression model is, let's say, and how I could use it for my business. What do you think of that use case where the role of an analytics translator could largely be performed by a large language model? I think that's ultimately where it could go, where you're relying on kind of a, let's say, an automated assistant to supply the gap where your kind of your management team is. And again, I think it works both ways. Either you're more of a business-centric team and you need a bit of that technical input and I think ChatGPT's applications like ChatGPT are perfectly suited for that. Or the opposite, you're more in an IT team and you want a way of expressing or translating kind of the technologies and knowledge that you have into something the business understands. As I said, these are life hacks. It starts as life hacks. How do you improve productivity within an organization? And that, that difference could be dramatic. Like instead of having to hire five data scientists, which could be overkill for your company, you can just hire one and then the rest is handled by a large language model. But then on the flip side, you could have highly, say, industrial companies who, are, who need a lot of these skills, but then lack the ability to translate it into strategies and outcomes. So you just plug it in where, it, where the gaps are. And you know that, I think that will start disrupting how hiring is done and how skills are distributed, maybe even the demand for skills. Right now, everyone wants to be a data scientist but then when this becomes mainstream, maybe it's the other way around. Everybody would rather be a translator armed with these technologies. And perhaps this disrupting of the job market is a perfect segue into our second episode. So I'll read my little script and then we'll move into the next topic. Okay, so that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to Dominic Lagot, CEO and CTO at Serolytics for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Dominic and I are going to discuss ethics 
and the social impacts of AI-driven data and analytics. If you can't wait till our next episode and would like to learn more about Dominic Ligard, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is DocLigot, or visit his company website, serolytics.com. Just one link in our show notes that I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to datadrivenpod.com, where we've got summaries of all our episodes and contact information for all our guests. And if you want to share your most compelling data narratives and use cases of data and analytics, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. Of course, you can always reach us on social media. Our handle on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is StoryIQ, or you can contact me directly on Twitter. My handle is Dominic Bohan. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. Hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. Okay, that's all for today. But remember, when it comes to data storytelling, less is more.